Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, how statute law is made. Uh, law has a number of different s- sources. The academic study of law, on which many of you are just now embarking, very often concentrates on one particular source, so-called judge-made law. The development of principles on a case-by-case basis. You're likely to spend uh, many hours in the next few years trying to draw the principle from a series of detailed and often perhaps seemingly inconsistent judicial pronouncements. However, there is another very significant body of new law that emerges every year from another source, Parliament, and seeks to set out the rules in clear, concise terms. That source is statute law, Acts of Parliament. For you, statute law will appear in your studies as a parallel set of rules, uh, sometimes setting out the law, often supplementing law from other sources, and nearly always with priority over it. UK statute law has a greater or lesser impact on almost every area of law you will study. But it is made in an entirely different way from judge-made law, not in an empirical, case-by-case way, but in a more abstract way, analysing many possible permutations, uh, a priori, in a way that brings the political world and the legal world into close and cooperative contact. I'm here to tell you about the process by which statute law is produced and also about those of us, the Parliamentary Council, who are most closely involved in it as lawyers. As such, we follow a discipline which is different in many respects from the one which you will be following as law students and which most practising lawyers follow. You and they have the task of searching for the line that is drawn by the law. Indeed, the theory of judge-made law itself is that the judges are really only finding it, not making it. A lawyer's clients want to know how to stay on the right side of the law, whether they have crossed it, and some, perhaps, how to get as close to it as possible. The job for the drafters of legislation involves us, instead, in actually drawing the line, and drawing it on a clean sheet of paper, with relatively few inhibitions on where it goes. Except, of course the policy of the government. The doctrine of the sovereignty of Parliament means that Parliament can do what it likes, although uh, European Union law and the European Convention on Human Rights do now provide some legal constraints. I myself have been involved in a bill not so long ago that deemed references to three days in March 2007 to be, and always to have been, references to three days in May that year. It was christened the TARDIS Act by some commentators. For us, the law is not a fixed point, but a variable in a complicated equation in which there are also many other variables which have to be balanced to produce the policy outcome and the legal result wanted by the government and by Parliament. I'm the head, as you've heard, of the Office of the Parliamentary Council. Uh, The office, uh, established in 1869... Uh, when it was uh, office in the sense of a post for a job, uh, subsequently became a corporate body, a collection of people, and also, of course, has a building. So three meanings of office, which, uh, from my career, you'll appreciate is something that I'm interested in. Uh, The office is located within the Cabinet Office, where I serve in civil service terms as the Permanent Secretary of the office. And there are three legal permanent secretaries in the civil service. There is the Treasury Solicitor, Uh, who is the head of the profession for the government legal service and responsible for civil litigation 
uh, with the government, the Director of Public Prosecutions, whose functions are obvious, and then there's me, who has quite the smallest command. My office consists of some 50 or 60 lawyers uh, who are not members of the government legal service, and we have about 20 support staff who help us with our work. Our main function is to prepare the bills, the proposed Acts of Parliament, that make up each session of Parliament the government's legislative programme. We also have a role, uh, a subsidiary role, in relation to some statutory instruments, but our main work is on Acts of Parliament. The difference from normal legal practice that I've described and our position on the boundaries between policy and law are manifested both by our location within the Cabinet Office at the Centre of Government and I also have uh, personally two other relevant functions. I advise the Cabinet Office on certain constitutional and parliamentary matters and I'm also ultimately responsible for the management of the civil servants who support the government's parliamentary business managers uh, who are ministers. I'll come back to that but the the government's parliamentary business managers are the leaders of each house, the leader of the House of Commons and the leader of the House of Lords, currently Sir George Young and Lord Strathclyde, and the chief whips in the two houses. Uh, and they are supported by a number of other whips and have deputies uh, who, under the coalition government, uh, are Liberal Democrats. But as I've said, the main job of the lawyers in my office is to produce the government's legislative programme. That's a responsibility I owe, ultimately, to the Prime Minister, but in practice, uh, I do work to the government's parliamentary business managers, whom I've just described, and to the Cabinet Committee, chaired by the Leader of the House of Commons. This is now known as the Parliamentary Business and Legislation Committee. Uh, it's been known as other things under previous governments. And the committee has uh, the, all the parliamentary business managers and their deputies as members, and also other ministers uh, who are interested in the progress of the government's parliamentary business and, in particular, legislation. That line of responsibility, though, to the parliamentary business managers is not the only line of accountability uh, for the Parliamentary Council. The government's legislative programme consists of all the bills from different government departments introduced in a particular session of Parliament. When a department wants a bill and is awarded a slot in the programme, uh, first of all by the Cabinet Committee, and then by the, confirmed by the Cabinet itself, I allocate a team of drafters to that bill. The drafter in charge of each bill is then accountable to the Minister in charge of the Department for the production of that Department's bills, but still, of course, as part of a single programme of all the legislation the Government wants in a particular year. And the Parliamentary Council also have a third responsibility. As government lawyers, they are responsible for drawing questions of legal policy affecting bills to the attention of the law officers of the Crown. There are currently three law officers of the Crown, Attorney General for England and Wales, Solicitor General for England and Wales, and the Advocate General for Scotland. These issues might include issues relating to the rule of law, such as proposals for retrospective legislation or for the early commencement of legislation. This is a responsibility that's usually discharged through briefing the law officers uh, for the cabinet committee that I've already mentioned. The attorney and the advocate general are members of that committee and the solicitor general may attend on behalf of the attorney. So, those are the responsibilities as background. What do the Parliamentary Council do 
And how does this all result in statute law? I want to deal with three stages in the production of statute law. The Parliamentary Council are involved to different degrees in each of them. And indeed, also in a fourth uh, stage, which I shall mention, which does occur in most cases, where the statute law, where the Act of Parliament has been passed uh, and has already reached the statute book, is brought into practical effect. The implementation stage can take uh, almost as long as getting the bill through Parliament. But the three pre-enactment stages are the planning stage, the policy development and drafting stage, and the stage of getting the bill through Parliament. So starting with the planning stage, I want to say something first about how the government's legislative programme is planned. Before I do, however, I need to mention some changes that are currently taking place. Uh, the coalition agreement the agreement between the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrat Party, which forms the basis of their uh, current cooperation in government, provides for the establishment of fixed-term parliaments of five years. This will replace the current system under which a parliament can last for a maximum of five years, but can be brought to an end earlier than that, triggering a new election, effectively whenever the Prime Minister chooses. The proposal is that with certain carefully defined exceptions, an election will be held on every fifth, uh, during every 5th May, with the next election being held in May 2015. A bill is currently passing through Parliament to achieve this, and it will have the effect of changing the pattern of legislative activity which has prevailed uh, until now. The government has already announced that this change will involve a change in the current parliament to annual sessions beginning and ending in the spring. By way of transitional arrangement, the current session of parliament, which began in May, uh, just after the election, is to continue until spring 2012. So there will be, a, to start with, a two-year session of parliament. The previous pattern had been to have a Queen's speech beginning a session and announcing the government's legislative intentions in the November of each year, except where there was an election year uh, when it would take place in the May, or immediately after the election. In recent um, decades, elections have tended to take place in the spring. The change to fixed terms that is now proposed means the way that a legislative session is likely to be planned in future will change, and what I say must take account of that. What is a parliamentary session? Parliamentary business over, say, a five-year parliament is organised into shorter periods, and the shorter periods are known as sessions. These are assumed, in normal cases, to last for about a year. Although, in practice, the previous system resulted in a, a long one at the beginning of a parliament and a short one at the end. The underlying assumption is that any business that is begun in one session must be ended in the same session. There are exceptions to that rule, but despite the exceptions, it is that assumption about finishing business in the same session as you begin it that determines how the government plans its proposals to change the law, its legislative programme. 
One of the most important factors that the government has to take into account when planning legislation is the amount of legislative time in both houses that is available for the discussion of legislation. Taking into account all the other things Parliament has to do over a year, time for legislation is quite limited over a 12-month period. This is true even though almost all the time that is available for legislation in Parliament is used for government legislation. The procedures for getting a bill through, which I shall come to, are capable of using up a considerable amount of time on a single bill. In addition, there are conventions that govern the minimum amount of time that should normally be taken between the different stages of the proceedings on a bill in each House. In recent years, governments have tended to confine the legislation passed in a single year um, uh, in a single year-long session to between only about 20 or 30 bills. The government does not have the opportunity to pass a, as much legislation as it likes. It is severely limited by these time constraints. And another important factor that affects planning is the need for the government to get its legislation through, uh, and that means through both Houses and the House of Lords in particular, it's in the nature of our Westminster parliamentary system that the government does, almost by definition, have a majority and therefore significant control over the passage of business through the House of Commons. Neither of these things has been true in recent years of the House of Lords. The government has not routinely had a majority on points uh, of substance and procedurally the government has no control over the timetabling of the business. It all has to be timetabled by agreement with all sides. Yet all legislation must be agreed to by the House of Lords, subject only to two rules. The rule requiring the House of Lords to restrain from interfering in financial matters, and the rule that allows a bill on other matters to become law without the agreement of the House of Lords, if it has passed the House of Commons twice, in two successive sessions, with a corresponding cost in parliamentary time. All this means that there is considerable competition within government for an opportunity to introduce a bill. So the bills that are mentioned in the Queen's speech, which is given at the beginning of every session and sets out the legislative programme, are those, tend to be those, that have the highest priority from a political point of view. There are some things that need to happen regularly and so will always have to be found in the programme. There has to be at least one finance bill every year, calendar year because the charge to income tax is subject to annual renewal. The finance bill is the bill that gives effect to the Chancellor of the Exchequer's revenue-raising proposals in a budget statement. Uh, there's also a regular series of legislation that deals with the other side of the budget, uh, which is uh, called supply procedure how money is spent. The Armed Forces Service Discipline legislation has to be renewed every five years, so there has to be an act every five years, and there will be one next year uh, to renew Army, Naval and Air Force discipline, and that's used as an opportunity to amend the law relating to the Armed Forces generally. The government may have entered into international obligations that need to be implemented, Occasionally, two emergencies give rise to the need for legislation. 
not so long ago, we had the bill to take power to nationalise the Northern Rock Building Society. Uh, that's an obvious example of an emergency. But generally speaking, most of the legislative programme will be dealing with the government's political priorities. So, so far since the election, the bills that have been introduced into Parliament have included a bill to abolish the identity card scheme, a bill to facilitate the conversion of schools into academies. This small bill went through both houses quickly between the election and the summer holidays. That was a bill for the Department of Education. A bill to in- the bill I've mentioned to introduce fixed-term parliaments. A much longer bill to provide for a referendum on al- the alternative vote system and for the system itself, if it's approved, and to redistribute seats to reduce the number of MPs in the House of Commons. Those are two bills that form part of the political and constitutional reform agenda of the government and are prepared for the Deputy Prime Minister who is based in the Cabinet Office. A bill to authorise the seizure of terrorist assets. That's a bill in responding to a Supreme Court judgment that found the previous regime uh, to be unlawful. Uh, That was a bill for the Treasury. A bill to reduce the costs of redundancy payments for civil servants under the Civil Servant (coughs) Compensation Scheme. That was a bill for the Cabinet Office. There have been two finance bills, one dealing with the uh, government's post-election budget and a second one dealing with various technical matters, uh, which, the timing of which was prevented uh, by the election. In addition, bills have been promised uh, for later this session. Uh, a bill on energy policy and regulation, a bill for the Department of Energy uh, and Climate Change, a bill dealing with planning and housing and local government, bill for the Department for Communities and Local Government. A structural reform of the Health Service, a bill for the Department of Health. A bill on the elected police commissioners, a bill for the Home Office. Uh, A bill introducing structural reform into the welfare benefit system for the Department of Work and Pensions. And a bill about changing the devolution settlement for Scotland and others. From this you will see it's a very common feature for statute law to deal with topics that fall within, or at least touch, the general category of public law, or constitutional law, or administrative law. But that does not mean that it therefore deals with areas of law that have little impact on individuals. It's true that the focus is very often on matters where government interacts with citizens, rather than uh, the basic law that deals with relationships, legal relationships between individuals. But, but relationships between individuals and the state covers much of modern life. And indeed, provisions relating to the health service or schools or benefits probably has as much, if not significantly more, impact on ordinary people than the law relating to matters dealt with by private law topics. And of course, sometimes statute law deals with that too. Usually, though, only when the state has an interest for example, when it interferes in contractual rights to protect consumers. In normal times, the government begins to plan its programme about a year in advance, with the departments bidding for a slot in the legislative programme, uh, expected to begin a year later. Those bids are decided upon by Cabinet, and the departments who are successful are authorised perhaps nine months to a year before the beginning of a session to start work on preparing bills for introduction at the beginning of the new session. 
usual to try and introduce as many bills at the beginning of a new session because that gives the most time, uh, most parliamentary time to get them through by the end. Of course, where, where a new government has been returned after an election, as one was this year in May, things do have to move quite a bit faster. In those circumstances, we've all had to pull out the stops to produce something very rapidly without reducing the quality of what will often contain the most important elements of a new government's programme. The Parliamentary Council, and certainly me as head of the office, have to be involved in all this planning uh, because, as with any project, those with the most experience of doing the work are best placed to advise on the scope of what can be done and how long it's going to take. We have the experience to be able to advise on that. Once a department has authority to prepare a bill, it starts working up the detail with a view to asking their departmental lawyers uh, to prepare instructions for the drafting team uh, in the Office of the Parliamentary Council. In theory, these two processes are supposed to operate in series, but it's always been the case that in practice they tend to operate much more in parallel. And increasingly, members of my office uh, are working with the department as part of the team in advance to help the policy develop into something that will be effective as law. The policy has to be decided upon by departmental ministers in terms that translate what is likely to have been a relatively broad idea in policy terms and work it up into detailed legal propositions. These then have to be submitted to the process of collective agreement within government, something which is of particular importance with a coalition government. There may also be interest groups that need to be consulted, and sometimes there may be issues that need to be resolved with the devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Other UK departments may have an interest in features of the policy. For example, the, the Ministry of Justice will have an interest in the form of any criminal offences, and also the impact of creating new um, criminal offences on the criminal justice system. And the Treasury, of course, will be all be interested in everything that has a financial implication or a cost. The process of policy development and how political ideas are turned into legal propositions uh, is a fascinating subject, but not one I'm going to address in detail here. I'm giving another lecture in London in a month's time in which I intend to deal with that topic. But the fundamental principle is that all a bill can do all a bill can ever do, all an Act of Parliament can ever do, is change the law. The process of analysis that results in legislation and the form that instructions to Parliamentary Council should usually take uh, is as follows. The government says, we want to do X, maybe affect a behaviour change in society, or change, relax or tighten the regulation of a particular activity. The existing law affecting that sort of behaviour or activity... Uh, has the following rules. The effect of applying those rules in the existing law is that doing X is not possible because we do not have the legal power to do it or perhaps we've been forbidden from doing it. Or, more, more likely, uh, we don't have the power to do every bit of it or we're forbidden from doing a bit of it. Therefore, in order to remove that difficulty, we need to change the law. We think that the best way to change the law in order to allow us to do X, is as follows. Therefore, we want to change the law in that way. That's the sort of logic that comes to the Parliamentary Council to draft. It's fundamental to what we do. 
Uh, we are very keen on saying that unnecessary material in statutes, as in human beings, tends to turn septic. By this we mean that if you try to say something in a bill that does not actually change the law, it can go wrong in one of two ways. It can persuade the courts that you intend to mean something that, by definition, you do not mean. Or it could persuade the courts that they can safely ignore various bits of statutes because they're only there for decoration. Either way, the effect would be to debase the coinage of communication between Parliament and the courts. Radically simplified, what our constitutional settlement provides in relation to statute law is a system under which Parliament, usually at the instance of government, and using the constitutional and democratic authority of both, decides what it wants the law to be. And then the courts are left responsible for construing the law and applying it in practice in individual cases. Maintaining the clarity of that relationship is one reason why I think what we do as Parliamentary Council is important. It would be possible to draft law that appeared to transfer the democratic function of determining law to the courts. And that is something we seek to avoid. Uh, there are other reasons too why what we do is important. Government policy that depends on the enactment of legislation will not be delivered unless the legislation is properly drafted and effective. If you get it wrong, it may, for all the reasons I've given about timetabling, take two years to put it right, at least. I'm in the habit of saying that legislation uh, is aimed and not steered. Once it has been launched by being given the royal assent, it will either hit the target or it won't. You cannot, in general, adjust its direction in flight. I should tell you, the, the, the difference between aiming and steering was something that occurred to me while I was teaching someone to drive, uh, and it's important in that context too. Unless legislation is so clearly expressed, second reason, unless legislation is so clearly expressed that it is simple to apply in practice, large amounts of uh, both public and private resources can be wasted on unnecessary litigation. There is, in fact, no such thing as an ambiguous Act of Parliament. You may, over the next few years, uh, have lots of acts of, hear lots of Acts of Parliament criticised for ambiguity. But they're not ambiguous. They are just Acts of Parliament that need to be litigated up to the Supreme Court in order to decide what they mean, uh, with consequential uh, crippling expenditure by the parties to the proceedings. There's another reason why what we do is important. Proposals for legislation are at the heart of Parliament's business and of the democratic process. Government ministers spend very much of their time in both houses defending and explaining the policy and wording of government bills. And finally, the drafting of primary legislation sets both the context by providing the powers and the standard for the drafting of all other legislation. When the Department have prepared their instructions to Parliamentary Council, they deliver them to me and I designate, or more often now confirm, the team of drafters I want to work on the bill. Rather 
We tend to use, we used to always to use teams of two, but it's still quite common to use only a team of two to draft, on the, uh, to draft a bill. Um, very seldom do we use more than five. One of the things that Parliamentary Council bring to the process of preparing legislation is that it is at this stage, when the instructions arrive, that they can stand back and examine what is proposed with an outside perspective and challenge the analysis of the solution. This is one part of a testing or proving process which is designed to ensure the legislation will stand up to scrutiny, first in Parliament and then in the courts. The first thing Parliamentary Council will do when instructions are received is to read them carefully with a view to critically assessing the legal and other analysis on which they are based. They then need to decide how to structure the legislation. Often there will be an early meeting with the departmental team to enable the two teams to meet and establish communications, perhaps to explore the political background and any analytical issues that have emerged from the instructions. One part of the process, which is much closer to the work of an ordinary lawyer, is finding out your starting point. Every change to the law, and I repeat that is all the statute can do, reflects a view of what the law already is. Sometimes great care needs to be taken about this because of the potential implications elsewhere. Drafters have two regular anxieties. They worry that by making express provision in order to make something clear, they will imply that it is something that should have been made clear in other cases where it was assumed that it went without saying. And they also worry about making changes that inadvertently remove something vital, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. At the same time, with all these worries, the drafter will usually have a deadline to meet and needs to work out how the time between the delivery of the instructions and the target date will best be used. Most bills are wanted for introduction, as I've said, early in the session. I've said there are two stages there's the ana of dra drafting. There's the analytical stage, when you question the premises, and then there is the actual drafting. The analytical function can take many forms. It may be about the logical coherence of the ideas making up the policy maybe about fitting them into the current law. It may be about taking account of the means by which the courts will be likely to involve themselves in the questions to which the bill gives rise. You're doing something that is uh, inherently unattractive to courts. You need to be much more careful about it. It may often be about testing a compromise that's been reached in policy formulation, testing whether or not it is sustainable in practice as a middle way, or instead uses an ambiguity merely to postpone the issue of what the law is to be decided upon by the courts. And it may be about the process of communication with the department, working out exactly what it is they're asking for. Sometimes this may involve unravelling what the department think a particular provision means, uh, or what a precedent that they're relying on means. Uh, and I want to say about, a word about precedents, because Parliamentary Council on the whole uh, do not encourage the use of precedents, either in the form of instructions or all when drafting. Uh, the image of us all with an enormous precedent book behind the desk, picking out the right set of words to use in a particular case, is completely false. Uh, instructions that come by asking us to follow something else tell us nothing except what the other provision said. They don't tell us whether what it said is what is now intended. So we ask for instructions in the form 
uh, of a narrative of what is wanted. After the initial analysis and the decisions on the structure, the drafting has to be done. Different drafters do this in different ways. Some sit back and contemplate the problem and ask lots of questions and then put everything on one side and start to draft. For others, the process of working up and constructing a draft with revision after revision is part of their way of doing the thinking. It's all a question of finding the clearest way to say what is wanted. This is not straightforward. Legislation is not, on the whole, written for those who want to comply with it in a spirit of goodwill. Paradoxically, though, it's worth pointing out that it is the effect of legislation on the law-abiding people which is likely to have the most and, and most important impact so far as policy is concerned. But an act must work for the people who don't want to comply with it as well as those who do. And it has to be written principally with those people in mind. A degree of paranoia is required on the part of the drafter. The drafter must assume that everything that could go wrong will go wrong and that whatever happens in any situation involving the application of the legislation, there will be at least one party to the dispute, possibly both of them, or indeed all of them, who will be using all their ingenuity to demonstrate that the provision means something different from what the drafter intended. And the drafter has to make the provision so clear that its true intention will be understood at once, and so certain that it cannot be misunderstood. All different considerations have to be balanced, including the tension between simplicity and certainty. And in the last resort, there is only one audience for legislation, and that's the Justice of the Supreme Court, because they will decide what it means. But I've already said, if you write only for them, you involve everyone else in expensive lit litigation. So you must write for other audiences. First and most importantly, you must write for the parliamentary audience. If they do not like the bill, it won't become law at all, so everything else will be in vain. Then, amongst other different audiences for the bill, there are, on the one hand, those who want to be able to identify the change in the law, and, on the other, those who want to know exactly what the law is once the change has been made. There are those who want to read the law in general terms to see broadly what effect it has. And there are those practitioners who want to use it as an equation to feed in the one particular case they've got in front of them and get an unambiguous answer in return. So the drafter has to make a judgment and to choose the words of the statute with all the potential audience in mind, carefully avoiding numerous traps uh, that language sets for those who must strive to avoid ambiguity. The clock is always ticking. There's a deadline, and it is very, very rare for a bill to be ready once the first draft has been produced. There is nearly always an iterative process with the drafter sending out uh, numerous drafts, receiving comments, and then sending revised drafts. When it comes to the time of introduction, the bill is submitted to the Parliamentary Business and Legislation Committee, and the committee considers whether the bill is ready and has received all the clearances it needs. It also considers other parliamentary handling matters. We'll decide which house the bill is introduced into. So, we have a bill ready for introduction. It is likely to be, say, 12 months since the Minister first proposed the idea of, for inclusion in the legislative programme. There are another 9 to 11 months before the bill will be on the statute book. And after that, there may be, as I've said, a lengthy period of implementation. What are the parliamentary stages? 
There are four, five formal procedural stages in each house. But there are also several other incidental procedures that need to be gone through. And the five procedures are slightly different in the two houses and may need to be supplemented if the houses are not agreed under a procedure which we call familiarly ping-pong or toing and froing. The role of the Parliamentary Council in relation to all of these is, first of all, to advise the Department on what is required in technical procedural terms. Secondly, to deal on behalf of the Department with the officials in the two houses who advise, in the case of the Commons, the Speaker, and in the case of the House of Lords, the House itself. House of Lords has no Speaker with powers to uh, control order. The, the House itself is in control of order in the House of Lords. We draft motions and procedural instruments, and we also draft all government amendments to the bill. Let me describe the formal proceedings in each house. When a bill is introduced, it is given its first reading. This is a formal stage and takes no time. Most bills can be introduced in either house, and as I've said, the PBL committee will have decided which one. At this stage, too, the minister attaches the statement to the bill saying that he considers that the bill is compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. That's a requirement of Section 19 of the Human Rights Act. Or alternatively, as has happened in the case of only one bill since 1997, that he is unable to say that it is compatible. The next stage is the second reading. This is a debate on the principle of the bill and typically, typically would take a whole parliamentary day on the floor of the House. After this stage, there may be some incidental motions in the Commons to deal with finance and timetabling. The next stage is the committee stage. In the Commons, this is more usually takes place in a small committee, now called a public bill committee, of perhaps 20 members with a chair. And it's met, those committees are made up in a way that reflects the party composition in the House. But it is possible for a bill to have its committee stage on the floor of the House, and that's the convention with bills of constitutional conven- uh, significance. Uh, the the um, AV and Boundaries Bill... Uh, is beginning its committee stage on the floor of the House of Commons tomorrow. In committee stage, the committee goes through the bill clause by clause and schedule by schedule, uh, considering amendments and proposing new clauses and also deciding whether each clause or schedule should be part of the bill. In the Lords, most bills do have their committee stage on the floor of the House, although there is another procedure called the Grand Committee Procedure Uh, where it goes to another place, but where all peers are entitled to attend. Again, there's another difference between the Commons and the Lords. In the Public Bill Committee, it's common these days for a bill, certainly a bill that starts in the Commons, uh, to have a number of sessions in committee when evidence is received, uh, rather than the bill itself debated. I should emphasise that these these are only the formal committee stages of the bill, Nevertheless, aspects of the bill may also, at the same time, be being considered by other committees in the House. The Departmental Select Committee may take an interest. Uh, The Political and Constitutional Reform Select Committee is in the process of considering the Parliamentary Voting System and Boundaries Bill and the Fixed Term Parliaments Bill, and the Junior Minister in the Cabinet Office uh, will be appearing before them on Thursday this week. The bill will also be considered by the Joint Human Rights Committee and by the Lords Delegated Powers and Legislative Reform Committee, who will consider respectively 
the human rights aspects of the bill and the appropriateness of any powers in the bill to make subordinate legislation. After committee stage in each house, uh, the bill goes to another stage called the report stage, or also in the Commons, the report stage or the consideration stage. Uh, this takes place on the floor of the House, and as in committee stage, the bill may be amended. Finally, in the, uh, there is the third reading stage. In the Commons, this is a short debate on whether the bill as amended should pass. And it normally takes place on the same day as the report or consideration stage. In the laws, though, the third reading is usually on a separate day, and it's an occasion when a limited category of further amendments to the bill may be made. Uh, when a bill has passed, uh, is passed by one house, it then goes to another house, and there may then be a process of messages being exchanged uh, to uh, reach agreement on what the bill should say. Finally, the bill is submitted uh, to Her Majesty for royal assent, and that will be signified in the House of Lords uh, in um, Norman French, with the words, La Reine, La Volt. Um, the bill is now law. Through Out all this process, the drafter stands by advising the department on procedure and drafting amendments. Few bills go through Parliament unamended, and some change extensively during their passage. It would be usual for most, if not all, of the amendments to be drafted by the drafting team in the Parliamentary Council Office. I think there's an impression in the world outside that Parliament is often no more than a rubber stamp for the government's intentions. I think the process I've described, and certainly my experience of 35 years' involvement in legislation, are both testimony to the fact that there is, that's very far from the case. Bills are very often amended in Parliament. It's true that amendments are nearly always drafted by the Parliamentary Council for the government, uh, but the process that leads to that is very often extensive consultation between Parliament or pressure from uh, backbenchers or from uh, peers in the House of Lords, uh, with the government agreeing... Uh, to come forward with an amendment that gives effect to a concession. I've tried to tell you the story of a bill from a policy idea and planning to royal assent. And I hope for those of you who are, are embarking on the study of law, it will make it easier to read a statute. It's important to remember that every statute began with the purpose of making a change and usually had, to a greater or lesser degree, a political context. Some level, at least, it will have been promoted to improve things for uh, individuals in society. And I would like to appeal to you to consider in your reading of statutes how the style of statute writing has changed, not only since, say, Magna Carta in 1215, but also from decade to decade uh, since the beginning of this century. Uh, the style of statute law has changed over the years, and no criticism can ignore the vintage of the object of the criticism. Uh, it's certainly in my 35 years in this work, things appear to have got much simpler. And I, I invite you in your reading to reflect on that. And if you have views on the more recent acts, I should be happy to hear them. I, I, I want to finish uh, on a slightly lighter note um, by referring you to um, a, a, a statute of Henry VIII, uh, because the, the cry for simplicity is not a new one. And in an act passed in 1536, Henry VIII, who is said to have um, drafted his own acts, although I think he might have got a bit of help from Cromwell with this one, um, put in these words. This act shall not be interpreted nor expounded by colour of any pretense or cause or by any subtle arguments. 
inventions or even reasons to the hindrance, disturbance or derogation of this Act. It would be nice if you could legislate uh, to um, prevent subtle arguments, but it's, it's not possible. I've often wondered whether the subtle argument Henry VIII had in that mind in that Act was that the Act was avoiding the marriage of Anne Boleyn and saying that it had never existed uh, and recounting her um, guilt for treason as a result of having betrayed her marriage. Uh, perhaps he was worried that someone might argue that it's difficult to betray a marriage that's deemed never to have existed. That's all I have to say.